Good morning, Olive Branch. If you have a junior high or high school student, feel free to allow them go out with Chris as he leaves with the youth uh, this, this morning. So if you have, just feel free to pile on out there. Uh, we're in the middle of our series here. We are in the middle of our series, Empty Promises, and we are, this is our third partner series. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about the approval of man versus the approval of God. How sometimes we become a little addicted to how our, other people's relationships in our life kind of formulate and kind of focus us on who we are and kind of establish who we are. But last week... Justin started out by uh, opening up a box and sharing some stuff with you. So this week, we also have a box. So I'm curious to see what's inside. Of course, I know already, but I'm going to pretend like I'm curious. Let's see. All right, let's see. Good things come in small packages, they say. I got an Academy Award here. And I got a compass. So who's familiar with the Academy Awards? Show your hands. People watch it. How many people watch it? What's the difference between an Academy Award and, say, maybe a trophy from, like, last week? <laughs> the difference really is, is that when you get this Academy Award, you're getting it from the, the peer approval of those people in the Academy that have so graciously said that you are capable of acting and therefore have awarded this to you because of your acting ability. And so the difference between this and a normal trophy is that this comes from the accolade of other people's approval of your ability to act from your peers. So it's a peer group award, which is slightly different than some of the other trophies that you get from earning it or working on it. But how many people remember some of the more weird or odd versions of the Oscar speeches? Anybody familiar with Sally Fields? Show of hands, who knows who Sally Fields is? For those of you that don't know, that Sally Fields is Forrest Gump's mom, and uh, Amazing Spider-Man, is a, a, that's his aunt. For those, of, for those of you who don't have any clue who Sally Fields with, Sally Fields won two Academy Awards, but in 85, she gave her most famous a speech, and she may have more than that, but, and so I want to try in my worst acting ability up here to act out a little bit about how her speech went when she got her Academy Award. She said, I haven't had an orthodox career, and I wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time, I didn't feel it, since she won two. But this time, I feel it. And I can't deny the fact that you like me. You like me. And she cries, and the fans go crazy, and all the people in the audience are just like in, act, just in awe, and they cut away to all these actors, and they're just like, oh, yes, 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 we do like you. <laughs> and it's weird to think, well, why would anybody get any benefit from that? Why is that not just a big narcissistic fest where people say, I like you for the thing that I do already? Whereas one person quoted that admiration is just seeing in other people what you like about yourself. And, and what makes us, as people, want to have the accolades of other people in our life? What makes us want to do that? Well, the truth is, what Sally Fields is saying is, she's an actress. There are other actors and actresses that are really well. And I, it's nice to have the accolades and, and recognition from other people to validate whether you're kind of going in the right direction. And how is that different than some of us, where some of us seek to have, you know, the approval of other people in our lives, either through family or friends or relationships, that kind of point to us who we are as people, kind of help us figure out whether we're on the right track. And what's wrong with that kind of appeal? And so today we're going to kind of go through an inventory, a list, and one of the things that's most confusing about this is that we are talking about taking good things and making them into gods, or taking good things and making them into ultimate things. And it's very hard sometimes to see, like, when am I doing this? Because the thing we like is actually a good, even though it's extreme and a little bit exaggerated. I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with someone wanting some kind of recognition from other people to see if I'm kind of going in the right direction for a career choice or in relationships or families. 
but it's when it goes awry and to whom we do it for. So today we're going to look through a few, kind of go through a checklist. Bear with me, there's a lot of material here, and there's some extra material afterwards, because this is something that I think really plagues us as human beings. It's very hard when we start talking about idols, especially as Christians, because we just have this image of like Indiana Jones and some idol and a rolling ball, and we think, we don't do that. I don't have any clue how that relates to me. And so our idols in our culture look very different, but today we're going to examine how some of these idols that we think of as an object of good can become the ultimate object that we place in, in way of God. So the Bible does say, so when is caring for other people what they think about you, a good thing. And so let's look at what the Bible says. In 1 Peter 2.12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But keep in mind the word conduct there, because we're going to get into that a little bit. Also, Romans 15.1-4 says, we, are, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, but not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, reproach of those who reproach fell on me. And finally, in Colossians 3, 23 through 24, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so we talk about conduct. In the first verse, it talks about conduct. In the second verse, it talks about pleasing his neighbor for his good. So God is concerned with how we interact with other people, how they approve of what we're doing based on whether it lines up with him, his conduct, his will. Why? So that they, get the, so that they could see who God is. He gets the glory. We should care about our reputations with other people in so much as we glorify God in our reputations and the things that we do, in the way that we love people, in the actions that we take. God is concerned with our conduct, and we should be concerned how other people perceive our conduct and whether it is holy, in so much as it brings glory to God. And also in the second verse, like I said, it says, to each of us to please his neighbor for what? For his neighbor's good. So it's not just that I want to, to do other things for other people. I want to please other people in my life. I want to care about other people in my life, not for my own good, but really for the good of them and so that they see the glory of God. So our conduct should be to please our neighbor for his good. To do what? To build him up so that he sees who Christ is in the Lord. And so the question of when is caring for what other people think about you a good thing? When it's done unto the Lord. You should care what other people think of us in so much as we desire to represent God and to care to do good to others in his name. The whole point sometimes, it's, it's very difficult in life to figure out why do we even have relationships? What, what are they for? What did they serve? Why did God create them in the first place? Is it, and sometimes in that situation, we find out that God has created different reasons for different relationships for different purposes. But mostly in the end, it's to teach you something about your relationship with God. And so how we interact with other people and oftentimes is, is a good indicator of where our conduct is as a litmus test of where we are with God. But by no means is it a guarantee that if we have good conduct, that everything we do is just going to be loved by other people. In fact, we're kind of guaranteed the opposite as Christians, that if we seek the favor of other people and we start getting in, in concerned for other people's well-being and we worry about our conduct, uh, if we if seek the favor of people as far as Christ, that we're guaranteed that people aren't going to like us all the time. It's not easy to take a stand for God. It's not easy to be a Christian. And I think the Bible alludes to this. It says, Now who is there to harm you if, your zeal, if you are zealous for what is good? Again, doing good for other people to service God. If you're zealous about that and you're excited about that, who's going to do anything against you? And he says, But 
Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. And so our good is when we do good and we do good conduct, guess what? Not everyone's going to like us. And that doesn't settle well with some of us. Some of us really struggle with how other people think about us and how they perceive us. And we don't like it when people have perceptions about us and that are false or God or wrong and not honoring to God. And so we kind of struggle with that. But God says, you know what? Wait a minute. If your focus is on me, I will reward you for those things even when the things aren't favorable to you in your circumstances. It says uh, here, the last part of that verse is, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. All of our relationships, interaction with other people in our life is to bring about God's will, to bring about his ways and to understand how we can have a better and more intimate, close relationship for other people. Not just for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others, but also because that's what God's done. He's brought relationships into our life to kind of show us how things work and how to grow closer to God. Let me go back a little bit. So when we seek to please more, more than God, when we, when we please people more than God and his ways, we make people an idol and put the approval of man before the approval of God. So when does this thing go, go sour? I, I need to have a little bit of interaction. I need to have a little bit of, of kind of knowing where other people are because God uses relationships to make me grow in his, in his faith. I want to have good conduct. But when do we as Christians you know, make other people an idol. I, I serve God. The person I love serves God, perhaps, and we are in relationship, and so we're, we're doing good. When in the world am I going to really actually, you know, find out whether I'm really doing a bad thing? And that's really the struggle is, how do we as Christians kind of do inventory in our lives to figure out whether we're actually putting something in the place of God that is actually good? So I come up with this little inventory, but before we get to that, I want to talk about the compass. How many people have actually used a compass to go out, to actually use for locations or whatever where you're going? The compass is great because it points north, and with north, you can figure out a lot of where you're going in a direction. In the military, they use it to figure out certain azimuths, to figure out certain locations to where they are. Having a good fixation on where north is will guide you through life. It gives you an idea of how to go through difficulties or circumstances where physically it helps you to go through a forest or a difficult time or how to get around in objects or how to explore through things and learn different things and learn different things about the terrain. The same is true for our lives. So we have a true north. We have a thing that we want, that we need, that we say, I need to grow as a person. I need to know who I am. I need to figure out where I'm going and how I'm getting there. And I need to figure this out. And how do I do that? And so many of us know that God has placed us in families, and we start to figure out who we are, sometimes in comparison to our parents as they raise us up. Sometimes our parents are good, and maybe they've taught us the things and the ways of God, but some of us haven't. And, and we start to learn the nature of relationships, and it kind of forges in us some kinds of presses and some kind of needs. And we think, well, maybe that's how I do it. I get in relationships with other people, and then I, God tells me about myself, perhaps, or other people kind of dictate where I'm at. And so people who get into jobs, they figure out, well, am I good at this, or am I good at that? And they use other people to kind of guide them as a compass. But the problem with people, when you start using them to shape who you are, and ultimately who you are, even though there is some degree of that that's healthy, is that if God isn't the true nature of the North, and you start following them as your compass, you start drifting into these really strange and odd territories. Your compass points in all different directions and you don't know where you're going. And, and, and you see a lot of people get in relationships and they go, well, is this person going to make me happy? No, okay, maybe this person. Okay, well, maybe this relationship. Well, maybe I have three kids. 
And the third kid will do it. Maybe the first one. Or maybe this relationship. And they start using relationships to figure out who they are. Maybe it's just with, with men. It may be slightly different because people are kind of different. Maybe you go, well, if I get in with this crowd, I know I've accomplished, I've arrived because now these people approve of me and now I'm good at my job and, and people have said so and I got the paper that says so. So their approval is important to me. And you start using them as a guide. Now, part of this is not unhealthy, as we, as we just talked about, if it lines up with God. Each of us here is the body of Christ, has a piece of something that God has taught us that you're uniquely designed that each of us needs. But it, it's, it's, it's in the whole of having Christ as the center of who we are that we are able to use and, and get into relationships to kind of have people show us who we are. But if at any time we make that person the thing we fixate on, that's when we start changing our purposes and going in a different direction that guides us that's not necessarily where God has us go. And so today I want to do an inventory because this is very hard um, to figure this out. And so I want to go through just a list of just simple ways to kind of see if this is something that you have, have struggled with or you may be dealing with. And the first group of people I would like to kind of see if we fall into is the group called social approval seekers. Now social approval seekers, they get a lot of their benefit on how they shape their life and who they are based on the social situations that they're in. And there are basically two kinds of people. There's more, I'm sure, but these are just some, some that I found that come up in Scripture and are just in, in, encountering human beings. And the first one is people pleasers. Now, people pleasers are interesting because they, 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 they do want to have harmony and be in, in association with other people. Who doesn't want to be constantly conflicting with other people? You know those people that are always in conflict with you and are always having a difficult time and it rubs you the wrong way? And some people have the opposite problem where their problem is, you know what, I just don't want anyone not to like me. I like harmony. I like peace. I like to know we're bonded with my friends. I like to know everything's okay. So are you okay? Are we okay in this relationship? Are we okay? Are we okay with our friends? And are we okay? And in this kind of assessment, they start to, to, there's something that's kind of a little bit off when it starts to go awry. And so uh, people who are people pleasers, they tend to, to find a tremendous amount of approval from the fulfillment they have from their relationships with other people. And they often compromise the truth for the sake of harmony. See, it's one thing you want everyone to be get along. You want everybody in the family to get along. You want everybody in the church to get along. But sometimes we can't. Why? Because the truth is something that is divisive. Sometimes people are a bad judge of what is right and wrong. And that's why we need a God. And that's why we need to start focusing on sometimes the conflicts that we have are positive if we're trying to see God. They need to happen. If we constantly avoid conflict, we never resolve it. The absence of conflict is not peace. And this is something that I get frustrated when you talk about peace talks and peace talks, where really peace is just, we don't want you shooting each other anymore. Please stop doing that. But that's not true peace and their unity and under truth about mutual appreciation and respect for other people and the respect for other people and lives. And so sometimes we want to get along and we sacrifice the truth to do so because we get a benefit from hanging out with other people. We get a benefit from the peace that we get. And we're actually using other people to gain that peace that only Christ can fulfill. And so if you're a people pleaser, you may want to think as you go through your relationships, is this a conflict I need to have? Or is this a conflict that I can just let go, love the person, and, and try and get along with them as best I can? God is the, the linchpin. No, this says, better is an open rebuke than a hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, I, I lived in New Mexico, Mexico for a couple of years. A lot of people there have kind of West Texas influence also. And so they'll say when they don't like someone, they won't necessarily come out directly and say anything. They'll go, oh, bless his heart. He's just original. <laughs> oh, bless his heart. Isn't, isn't she just so fun to be around? And they do this with a grin on their face. Oh, bless their heart. Because they don't really want to say, you know what? Sometimes I don't get along with you. You frustrate me. 
and they don't want to develop the kind of relationship that needs, so they just kind of throw out little jabs or they throw out little barbs. This is a way also to kind of not want to get into an argument, but I'm going to tell you that I don't, want, I don't like what you do. So Because I like harmony, but I also got to, but you bother me. And so if that's sometimes an indicator, whether you're more of a people pleaser also, than having a serious conversation with somebody. The Bible says it'd be possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. The problem is, is it, 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 you can't always, it's not all you that's doing it. It says, if it's all possible, as far as it depends on you, which means you have limitations. So when we think we can solve all peaceful problems within all situations and all relationships of our life, we kind of put ourselves in the place of God. Because I know how to bring peace to the situation. I know, even with God's word, I know how to bring peace. Sometimes you can't control other people. And you don't definitely want their approval of you when they're in the wrong and not serving God to dictate your actions when you need to stand strong on the word. The next group of people, um, let me go back up a little bit, is in-group seekers. Now, this is a group that's been around the Bible quite a bit. Now, we often use other groups, in-groups, and, and other people to kind of gauge where we are in a situation. So if you're at work, you know who the best workers are. You want to emulate some of their character. You get with those guys. They teach you the ropes. You get in good with their relationships. You grow as a person. And so people have thought this is a practical thing to do. Oftentimes, the people who have the best time out in an activity are the people who are around people who are energetic, easygoing, fun to get along with, able to take control of a situation, just have a fun time. These are the groups that we want to feel connected to because we want to have the experience that is most positive. The problem is, is when we make these people a fixation and we focus on these people above the truth, there's going to come a time when the word of God or the truth of God or the goodness of God is going to come into conflict with us being in that group. This is one time where you're in the group, you have your buddies and pals with the CEO of a company, and you're all connected, and you're having this conversation, and then all of a sudden he asks you, hey, why don't you just like cheat a little on their taxes here, or why don't you get rid of that guy? He's kind of in our way, even though that guy has a kid and a family and all this stuff. Why don't we just, I want you to do this thing that's a little uncomfortable to you and compromises, and at that point you have this crossroads. Do I please this guy and take the, and, and take the promotion, or do I make this guy upset at me and potentially risk my future, my family, and all these other situations because that is what God would have me do. And so people who seek to have emulation to grow through other people in relationships with the in-group, they struggle when they come to this crossroads. And I guarantee you, if we are making them an idol, it will come up at some point where this situation will occur, where you'll have to choose, am I a Christian and has values and I care about the eternity of Christ when I stand before him, or do I just want this promotion now? Or do I just want to be in the in-group now? Or do I just want to feel accepted and comfortable and safe and warm and, and thought of as good? And this is no different. This happened in the Bible. In John 12, 42 through 43, there's a group of people here that, that is mentioned. So nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Because this is a church setting. That's where you got ahead. You got to know people in the synagogue. It says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Oops, I went back too far. Wow, that went way, way back. All right. So they love the approval of man that comes before God. How many people know the story of Nicodemus? 
where Nicodemus is like, and God says to him, you know, unless you be born again, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's like, what is that? He's like, you don't know the simple things about the truth of God, yet you're kind of a, in the in crowd. You're one of the people that should know this, yet you don't know anything. Because, he's, because of his fixation, because of his, his relationship, he came to God in secret because he was fixated on what the crowd thought. He was afraid. There was a whole group of people in this particular time that were also having this experience as well, where they were trying to be like, well, I, love, I know who God is, I know who Christ is, but I can't take a step because I, I know it'll lose my standing in my favor before people. And so that is the crossroads that we're at. And then as the crossroads that they feel, these people allowed Christ, even though they were in positions of power and authority, to be crucified for the sake of where they were, for their own glory and their own standing. And they felt horrible when it happens. We do this every time when we substitute our own approval and our own getting ahead from other people than we do before God. So keep that in mind. I go back. There we go. Now we're on track. So maybe your problem isn't that you really care, like, oh, I just want everybody to like me. And that's not your problem. And maybe you're not like, oh, I just, I just need peace all the time. Oh, I'm in with the in crowd. Maybe your problem is you don't really need anyone. You actually are a pretty confident person. Maybe God has gifted you with a center, and you're just a centered person, and you kind of feel okay, and you know that people are all human, and you, make, you are your own strength. And you say a lot of times, like, um, you know, I rely on my gut. I just have a gut feeling, and I trust my gut. Well, in your sense, the temptation is for you to place yourself as the person before that you want to appease more than anyone else, which is still the approval of man. The only difference is you're the man. You're the man. You know what you need to do to get things ahead. You know what you need to do to get connecting with other people. You don't really need anyone's opinion because you're just grounded in who you are. And to me, honestly with you, it is more tempting if that is even true. If you are a person that actually can perceive truth really well, but you, and you start to rely on yourself, it is very tempting to start actually relying on your own strength rather than on knowing when to rely on the Lord. And you'll see that these people oftentimes are so strong on their will, the first thing that kind of comes into to play is their, how they treat other people. They've lost the ability to empathize. Now, empathy does not mean that I go and do whatever you ask me to do because you asked me to do it and I'm trying to feel good about it. Empathy is really trying to figure out how you feel about it, perceive it, even if I disagree. But these, that's the first thing to go when someone is self-reliant and self-approval is their, is their weakness. They start to rely on themselves before God, and, they, and we struggle with that. And so the Bible says, if there is anyone, is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from the love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction of sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and in one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests only, but also to the interest of others. Yes, you have a great idea. Guess what? Someone may need help to formulate their own great ideas, but no one's ever cared enough to do that for them. But if we're always the man, we can never have God use us in that particular regard. The next one is in relational addicts, and I, don't, I use the word addict here as, as, as a metaphor, but it, the, the behaviors of this particular situation are very similar to real addictions, uh, and it's basically using relationships as a means to kind of get what we are and get a sense of fulfillment. There is a sense of fulfillment that is a God-honoring sense when you're in a positive relationship where both people are serving the Lord, but there's also a sense we have to contend and struggle. But when we start to fixate on that as the object of who we are and and end-all, be-all, and we start making an idol, that's where it starts to go awry. And the first one I call family fixated. Now, to be honest with you, uh, there is nothing wrong with the family, obviously. 
Uh, it's the, one of the things I think we do really well as a church is help people grow in their relationships with their wives, their husbands, their children. And we help the families. And the family is very important to us. But we can stop from focusing on the family to fixating on the family to the point where it becomes an idol. And you're like, well, that's crazy. How, how, does, how does fixating on the family become an idol? Well, when it gets in the way of your primary relationship and what God calls you to do and other things in your life. So how does that look? You ever notice that and sometimes one of the first things that we do sometimes when we're at home is like, look, we need quality time. Someone calls you on the phone and they're in need and you're like, wait a minute, I'm having quality time right now. I'm spending time with my family. And as my friend said, he often would use that as an excuse just to watch TV. So he's sitting at home with his family. They're all together, but they're not saying anything and they're not growing together in the Lord or anything. They're just kind of watching TV and not talking. But it gave him, he used to use that as an excuse not to interact with other people within the church. Where a partner is, is not feeling well, and so I need to take care of them, even though they, I'm pretty sure if, if, they're not, if they're really ill, they may need you to take care of them. But you're like, I don't need to go to church for like a month because everybody's got a cold. And I don't need to go to join a small group because I'm, I have to take time on my Sundays to focus on my family. And I don't need to help get involved with anyone else in my neighborhood. I just drive into my neighborhood because I, I got to take care of my family. And it is very easy to start placing family as the sole source of what we do and be all end all, and we neglect all other relationships. They're just not important. Because God said, this is important. I need to forsake all others and not care about anyone. Yes, there's a certain amount of forsaking and taking care of your family. Yes, it is our job to take care of our family. But if we don't care about anyone else, how is anyone going to be able to understand how to even have a prosperous family? We are a collective of families coming together to be a family. If we never act like one, we're just visiting each other. We're not even like cousins. And so it's very easy to do that. Now, how does that happen sometimes when we fixate on a family member? Oftentimes, it also happens within the family. We're so enclosed in our own kind of relationships that we start to make compromises when the truth comes. The Bible says you're going to have conflict. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have conflict in your family. And so therefore, we start to make compromises with our families. We start to allow things because we want our love and our relationship to be there when we really should be confronting people for some of the things. Because if we really love them, we would tell them things that are difficult and have the conflict that we need. But no, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that bond. And if I say something that doesn't offend them, that offends them, our family will be in strife. Maybe strife is how God is going to use to bring about your family. And so one of the early signs, even within a family, that we're placing them before God is when we're not willing to have the conversations that should come up and we avoid them time and time again when God places the situation in our families in front of our faces and we're just unwilling to have the conversation because we want the love. The next one is single bound. When people are bound up as a single person in their relationships and they're having a difficult time and they're struggling, it is easy for us to start seeking out relationships because we want it so bad. We see all the families at church getting together, having kids, and you're not engaged with them, and you're just like, I really want that. And so we start to change our values and start following other things and making compromises in order to get that relationship. And it's true, the compass isn't anymore true. Many people know when they, when they have people that have been in relationships, where they get in a relationship and they're like, wow, I really like camping, and I'm really gregarious, and I go out, and I'm just really fun. Oh, you broke up with me? Okay. I really don't like going camping or anything. I like to stay home and I'm a home person. Why? Because I want to have this relationship. I'm going to change with every person I'm with because I just want someone to like me. I just want to be in the relationship. And so people will make compromises of their faith and of their situations and in their relationships because they don't have a grounding with them and the Lord and they're seeking this need. I need this. And God's saying, I can fulfill that if you come to me. 
even if you never get married, I am your God and I can fulfill that for you. I can fulfill the need of what it means to have a good and accomplished life, but not if we're looking around for it. And so one of the things I encourage people as singles people is to get grounded with the Lord and seek Him as your holiness. That is your point. If at any time you're blessed with getting married, great. But some of the greatest men in the Bible were not married men. They served God and they had more time to do so. I also used to, to be a singles minister, so I used to deal also with people who were divorced. And this is where it becomes the most tragic oftentimes. I would see people get divorced, and maybe they were kind of lax in their faith for a while. And they're like, you know what, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to get my life right, and I'm going to start reading, and I'm going to start praying, and I'm going to get connected. And, and then that person's going to like me. And then we can reconcile the relationship, and then everything will be okay. And I say, that's a good thing to want to do, but not for the reasons that you're doing it. If your reason to get connected back in that primary relationship is only because you want to use God as a means to get the person you want, you're cheating on God. And that is not a positive place to be. Now, if you serve God and she comes or he comes and they come back and you reconcile, great. But, but the primary relationship by which that healthiness is going to come out of is going to be your connection with God. Do so for the sake of God's relationship because he's the one that's going to guide you in that circumstance. I know it's tempting because it's so difficult to want that person to love and to confuse it, but oftentimes that gets in the way of serving God. So get that first, then reconcile, obviously reconcile that relationship if you can. The next one is the primary focus, which is relational addictions, and this is a, a kid-focused now, we have families, and families have hierarchies, and there are certain responsibilities within a family. But people have two kind of ways that they make kids the center of attention. They oftentimes will say, you know, I, 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 you'll see that their parenting style is some that's a little more capitulating because they don't want to be perceived by their kids as not loving them. And oftentimes this shows up in teenage culture and in hanging out with, you know, teenagers and parents. Like, you know, I, I, I don't want to tell my kid it's not good to... It's not good to smoke and drink, but you know, at least if they do it in the house, we'll have a relationship, and we can keep that under wraps, and I can kind of guide them through it. So, you know, it's better to have the kegger at my house than it is to have the confrontation with my kid about what's right and wrong. It's better to just like, I don't want the neighbors to know how bad a parent I am, so I, I, I will give the kid, you know, I will pay for his traffic tickets, and I'll do all that because I don't want anybody to perceive that, that I'm not a good parent because it's important to me that people perceive me as that. So there is a kind of a, a, well, caring more about having, being their friend, perhaps, than being actually their parent and having the conflict that's necessary. And we see this in some parenting styles. Where because, and it often stems from some hurt or somebody abusing a person who was a parent, and they just want to bond with their kids so bad because they didn't have that bond. And I know that's a desire that some people have, but it's something that we can get in the way of God. The other kind of parent is the, is the parent that sees their kids as an extension of their, their own self. Maybe they weren't all a, a go-getter, but my kid's going to have everything that I didn't have. He is my, he's going to go to, he's going to get baseball, he's going to get, you know, get a, he's going to be the top in his class, and I'm going to spend all this time with him, and he's going to be this, and he's going to be that. And it sounds like they're talking about a brand, not a person. He's going to be the best brand on the market, and everybody's going to see that he's going to go to the best schools, and he's going to do the right thing. And you see this tremendous disappointment because sometimes children have a will of their own, from what I hear from parents. They don't always fit our model. We're raising little CEOs instead of little children. And sometimes we push them into things that necessarily God hasn't designed them to. Do we know enough about our children to know what they're designed for? What did God design in them to do? Are we fostering that or are we making brands? Because what does that do for us? It makes us look good. 
It makes us look right. Oh, look, I have a, I, all of my kids went to Yale. All of my kids are successful. But do all your kids love the Lord? And maybe they don't because they have a will of their own. Does that mean you're a terrible person now because you didn't share the gospel with them? And everybody's going to know. They have to stand before God on their own. All you're responsible for is pleasing God. And sometimes you've done enough and you're beating yourself up and letting other people beat you up because you want to be seen as a good parent and God wants you to be seen as honoring him. So keep that in mind. Um, the next one is called Partner Obsessed. And we're going to look in the book of Genesis here for this one. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 29. That's a bit of a long story, so I'm going to simplify this a bit. But just to keep in mind, the first point here is partner-obsessed people romanticize their partner as God, and you see this imbalance. So you see sometimes this is really where the definition comes in a codependent. A person's like incredibly violent or something, but yeah, I can change him. I can save him. They're romanticizing what they can do of the relationship. They're looking to the future more necessarily than looking for what's actually in front of them. And so sometimes people romanticize the relationship. It's the greatest thing ever. And oh, it just fulfills every aspect of my need. And so sometimes we romanticize their partner a little bit in relationships. The other side is to criticize or despise their partner for not being a god. It's like a romantic, oh, they're just the greatest people ever. And then after three years of marriage, you're like, I wonder want to kill this person. They're a human being. And how dare they be a human being and not fulfill all the needs I didn't get as a child? And it's very easy to do that because you, we've placed them in a place that they're not supposed to be. God is our ultimate source. They may do something that's contrary to God's will and you still have to serve, and that's a difficult thing. And it's hard not to, in those primary relationships, to make those primary relationships something that we don't place before God because we, we seek re- reconciliation. So here we have a story of Jacob and Leah. Just a little background. Leah is who I want to focus on in this story, but Jacob is a guy who decided he wanted to be he wanted to have to be married to this woman named Rachel. And so he just devised this plan to work seven years to marry Rachel. And then once he got, Ra- once he got Rachel, everything would be happy. He would be pleased. He, he desired Rachel. And that's who he wanted to make his wife. He was going to make it happen. What happened was, is, is when in his attempt to make it happen, he didn't really read the fine print with his obsession with trying to make her his wife. And in that, the father-in-law slipped in a, a clause that he didn't read. And so here that, here's that's what we find here in, in, uh, in verse... 15 here. It says that Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve for nothing? Now, tell me what your wages are. And it skipped down to verse 9. It says, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter in verse 18 for Rachel. And Laban says something very interesting. He says, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other person, uh, than any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him to be a, just like a day because of the love he had for her, right? He doesn't say there, Laban, I'm going to give her to you. He just says, oh, I guess it's better that she marry you. And so they go into the relationship and they, they, they have, uh, if you know anything about ancient culture, in the ancient culture, people, when they married, uh, they didn't have electricity. They went into the tent and, it was a, and, and in that they had the consummation of the marriage. And, and in the morning, it says that he woke up and he found out he wasn't married to Rachel. He was married to Leah. And he goes back to Laban. He says, what did you do? And he says, hey, it's our custom here in our culture to marry off the firstborn. Not the second, so I, I don't know where you got this idea. I didn't say I was going to do that, but, and he's like, oh. And so he devises another plan. He says, look, I'll work another seven years, and I'll marry Leah. I mean, I'll marry Rachel. And so finally, he works another seven years, and two marriages later, he feels like he gets what he wants. But as you read in the Bible, and I encourage you to read the story, it never goes well in his relationships with Jacob. 
But it's Leah that I want to focus on because it's Leah that becomes the victim. Because she, in, in some senses, she is the one that is in the situation of, uh, and she didn't do anything. She shows up to get married to her husband, and guess what? He didn't love her. He wanted to marry her sister. And now she's stuck in a marriage where she's not being loved. And all Rachel wants is, and Leah wants is her husband to love her. And she, she devises a plan. Maybe if I do certain things, I'll love her. So let's read her plan here in verse 31. When the, the Lord saw that Leah was hated, hated by Jacob, he opened her room, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Reuben. For, he, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my afflictions, and now my husband will love me. So God gives her a kid. She goes, well, man, this will, this will heal the relationship. We have a kid. He's going to love me now. Let's look and see if that happens. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. So she called him Simeon. Still no love. God's blessing her with children and she's thinking, this is going to fix my marriage. Maybe this is God's way of making my husband love me. And God keeps granting her children and she keeps thinking, well, this is what God wants me to do. Now, does she desire a bad thing? It's not a bad thing to want to be loved by her husband. But she's not getting the needs that she feels and so she adds children to the mix and oftentimes people will add children to save her relationship instead of fixing it. Let's see, she keeps going. Again, she conceived and bore a son, and this time my husband will be attached to me because I was born, I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name shall be called Levi. Now, wait till you get, still no love, but listen to the difference in this fourth son. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, I'll praise the Lord. Therefore, she called him, his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing anymore. What was different about her resolve? This time she said, you know what? I don't know if my husband's ever going to love me, but I know you love me, God. And this word for the Lord is one that's based on the promise. Somehow she figured out who Jesus was and who God was in her life. And she found out the promise of Abraham. And she said, you know what? If I focus on God, maybe God will bless me because he's the one that sent me my kids. My husband may never bless me, but God sees me. And she has, what child does she have? Who does she bore, that last child? She bears Judah. And anyone who knows who Judah is, is that's the lineage where Jesus comes from. He's born in the tribe of Judah. It is when she acknowledges who God is in her life that he brings the birth of Christ into her life, and that becomes her legacy. She is now part of the covenant relationship with her people in a way that many people weren't blessed. God favors her because she puts her rest on the promise of God in his relationship. And that's ultimately what we want to do. There's nothing wrong with wanting relationships. There's nothing wrong with wanting other people to, have, to accept us in certain senses. But when we put that before God and we make that our idol, even when it's a good thing, we're going to be disappointed every time. So as I close here with, with this last statement from C.S. Lewis, I just want us to think about this, about what Christ's role is in our life. C.S. Lewis said in a quote, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Without Christ, we are blind not only to who He is in our lives, but also blind to seeing everything else in its proper light. 
As Christians, we put Christ first because he's like the sun. We are in darkness without him. He is the reason why we can interact with everybody. We are not going to see what relationships are supposed to be like. We are not going to have proper relationships unless we make God first. Because that is how you see relationships work in and of themselves. That is how you see the way we're supposed to interact. And that's what God's called us to do. So my challenge this week is really, as a church... I, have, I went through these things really fast, and it's a lot of information. I, have, I went and did this sheet called Beyond the Message. For those of you who get it, get it. This is just, I want us to sit down in the week and think about how these things may be affecting our lives. I want us to analyze this. And this 35 minutes, 40 minutes is not going to be enough. That sometime in your week, perhaps take this sheet, go through it, and look at these scripture verses and see if you fall into these categories. And then pray that God removes those idols from our lives. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear God, I just pray for us as a church, as we come together as a family, Lord God. It is amazing what you do in the midst of your people when we remove our idols from, a, from you, God. It's amazing the kind of relationships we could have as a church if we remove the things and the obstacles that we seek to make and in, in put in your place, God. So as a church, we just pray, God, that you continue to help us see our own idols, not just individually, but also as a family, as the family of God, Lord. So help your church, this church, all the branch, to do those things, Lord, and, and honor you, Lord to make you number one. They have no other gods but you, God. But some, Lord, Lord God, in here, there may be someone struggling with relationships. They're having difficult times, God. I pray for those people. And if that is you, if you are just frustrated going from relationship to relationship and you don't understand who you are in Christ and you don't understand what God's did for you, God was calling you right now to come to his son. The only way we can be at peace is to have this reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ. So if that's you and you want that relationship, please raise your hand now. Thank you. If that was you and you raised your hand, simply just pray this prayer. God, I want to have what you have to offer, Lord. I know that I am, I am without, God, without a direction, without any guidance in my life. I know that I am flawed, God, and I'm a sinner, and I need your son and his perfection to, to point me in the right direction. So, Lord, help me to remove all of those obstacles. Lord, help me to focus in on you and make you number one in my life. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, and be my God. We thank you, God, for this service. We thank you for everything that you want to do with all our branch, and we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.